You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 22nd of January 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, and coming up in the next half an hour, I'm joined by the Australian journalist Latika Burke, who's going to help me go through all the newspapers. Then we'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. What the Insta obituary writers want is just what those autograph collectors sought, a moment of connection and a fleeting equivalence. And Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, rounds up the events of the week. We learned that it turns out that ignorance of the law actually excuses quite a lot, as long as you wrote the law yourself. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday. Do join us. The top US and Russian diplomats didn't make any major breakthroughs at discussions on Ukraine on Friday, but agreed to keep talking to try and resolve a crisis that stoked fears of a military conflict. After the talks in Geneva, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned of a swift, severe response if Russia invades Ukraine after massing troops near its border. Both he and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said they were open to further dialogue and Blinken saw grounds to hope that mutual security concerns could be addressed. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres condemned airstrikes by Saudi-led coalitions in Yemen on Friday that reportedly killed at least 60 people in a detention centre in the Houthi-led Sada province. There are reports of further deadly airstrikes elsewhere in Yemen, with children amongst those killed. And the US government says it will suspend 44 China-bound flights from the United States by four Chinese carriers in response to the Chinese government's decision to suspend some US carrier flights over COVID-19 concerns. China has all but shut its borders to travellers, cutting total international flights to just 200 a week or 2% of pre-pandemic levels. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm pleased to say that joining me this morning is Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. You're looking very active. You're clearly dressed for the gym. Have you been or are you going? I'm going and I'm happy to shed a layer or two because uh, earlier this week I was in Belgrade, Serbia. Snow on the ground. It's the first time I've seen snow this winter. No snow from the from the skies, unfortunately, but it was much colder there than it is here and it really did uh, make me realise we've had quite a warm winter here in the UK so far. Yeah, so you were clearly in Belgrade looking at Novak's Djokovic, as he's been called. Novak's Djokovic, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. What a story, what a drama. And, I mean, in many ways as a journalist, this is a bit of a dream story because it crosses every single aspect of life. It's politics, it's immigration, it's COVID, uh, it's also sport, it's culture, it's a good old culture war between, of course, the, the choice to have your vaccine and whether or not that then precludes you from your job. And so uh, arriving in, in Belgrade, of course, I wasn't far from alone, Georgina. There were uh, hundreds of journalists and media packed outside Belgrade Airport when, when I arrived. And uh, no Novak Djokovic came through the airport about an hour after myself and uh, he slipped out the diplomatic entrance, which 
was really quite surprising because the way that the Serbian government had been talking about their hero and certainly the Djokovic family, uh, Sergen Djokovic had talked about Novak being like Christ and that Australia was crucifying his <laughs> eldest son on the cross just like Jesus. Uh, we rather expected a much bigger homecoming for Novak Djokovic and the biggest surprise this week was just how quiet Belgrade was. And normally in Belgrade, I'm told there's a, a rally that's custom it's held outside the parliament, and that's for any returning sports hero. Now, Djokovic is certainly still a sports hero in Serbia's eyes, but there was no rally for him. There was no party or, or any even view of the family, and the way he just slunk back into the capital suggests, suggests that he and the Serbian government know that uh, it's not just what happened in Australia that's the issue for Novak now. This will have ongoing consequences. There could be copycat bans adopted in France, possibly the United States, although I think that might be a, a little harder to see happening in, in the long run. Um, and also, of course, the sponsorships. Mm. You know, this really became an issue when Lacoste, the French uh, sports brand, uh, said they wanted a word ASAP with Novak about what had happened in the Australian Open. And what Australia has done to Novak Djokovic is not just exclude him from competing in the Australian Open, but they have actually made brand Novak brand Novaks. And yeah. that's a big, big problem for Djokovic going forward. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that his family was saying was that he was tortured whilst in detention. But what that does highlight, I'm quite sure he wasn't put on a rack. I mean, I'm sure it was just <laughs> sort of slightly inferior food. But... What that, of course, does focus the spotlight on is all of the other people in detention, which actually many, many people outside of Australia had no idea about. Yes. I mean, if you're going to uh, seek an account of Australia's border activities, I would not recommend to you the colourful characterisations made by Sergeant Djokovic. I would recommend my own <laughs> masthead, the Sydney Morning Herald and Melbourne Age. Um, but yes, Australia has long held a very uh, controlling uh, attitude towards its border. And, and that's what we've seen with Novak Djokovic. Now, from an Australian's perspective, this is not new. I mean, this dates right back to 2001, uh, basically shortly after September 11, when terrorism put an anxiety into the Australian community about refugees coming specifically by boat, never by aeroplane, incidentally, but always by boat. And uh, this... This narrative has dominated Australian politics for the last three decades. No side of politics has been able to escape it and some take it further and further. And that's what we've had under the con current Conservative government. And so what uh, Novak, um, his detention exposed was, yes, in Australia, if there's a problem with your visa, you get hauled and put into immigration detention no matter who you are. You'll get put into a, a rather dodgy hotel where uh, refugees who've been detained there or asylum seekers who've been detained there have complained of maggots in their food. Now, Djokovic, I think fairly reasonably, did request um, to pay for his own accommodation. He said, I, I am, he's, I think, got a gluten intolerance or something. I'd like to organise my own food. I would like to have access to a laptop and my phone. And, and some of these things were denied, according to the family. And that was part of why they exaggerated perhaps some of the claims they made. But no, Australia is not a friendly place if you're not got all your documentation in order, as, as Novak Djokovic exposed. But many, many asylum seekers and, and migrants in the past know.
Mm, absolutely. I mean, it was quite quite shocking to, to find out just how long some of those people had mm. been there too. Just... Indeed, and some are still on uh, small Pacific islands, waiting and waiting and waiting. And this is a terrible limbo that they're held in because the government says, well, you're not uh, a refugee, you should go home to your home country. They say, well, we can't leave and we genuinely fear safety. So they've, they've had a problem with their uh, claim being recognised. Then they're just left to languish on these islands for years and years and years now. There's uh, a lot of obviously mental health issues that arise from that 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 uh, often ends in suicide. It's a very very bleak stain on Australia's uh, history and and ongoing treatment. Yeah, uh, Letika, I just want to look now at the story that's obviously dominating front pages across the world, and this is the the uh, possible invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But uh, the FT has a, a different take on it, and this is all about gas supplies. Tell us more. Yeah, this is a really interesting story on the front page of the FT right now. And it reports that the United States government is holding discussions with Qatar and other large gas exporters because what they're trying to do is draw up contingency measures in case Russia does invade Ukraine, which I think the international community seems fairly certain is going to happen. And that would in of itself disrupt supplies to Europe. Now, why that's important is because many see the softness of Europe towards Russia and its intentions in Ukraine as part and parcel of this reliance on Russian gas. And so the worrying part in this report is that uh, these Washington sources are quoted as saying that this is actually very hard. There's no magic wand. And uh, in in terms of the complications of shipping uh, liquefied gas on, on sea, it's very, very difficult. So I think if you were reading this report and thinking, well, this sounds very sensible and hopeful and optimistic, actually, when you read into this report, Georgina, it sounds more pessimistic, I think, because they're actually saying it's going to be very hard to achieve uh, basically trying to give Europe some independence from Russian gas if it comes to needing that. Mm. And that will then, of course, put domestic uh, pressures uh, all across Europe. We're already seeing gas prices go up. So this is a really toxic combination. Absolutely. And I mean, just looking at uh, uh, the Spiegel, the international version, that's talking about Germany's role in this. And of course, that's hugely complicated by the fact that it has the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And Germany is, amongst all of the allies, the EU allies, is the one pulling back because of this pipeline. Yeah, well, Germany should be the powerhouse of Europe, but it's the softest on this. And that is extremely concerning. Because what does that mean? It it means that these long-term strategies of authoritarian governments like China and Russia to make the West dependent upon them so that when the time comes, they've got the key switch that they can turn on and off. And I think we are seeing the fruition of that strategy come to bear and not in the West's favour. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, this is a story, obviously, that, that's, that, that's going to go on and on. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean... The tensions are very high. I think what's surprising is is how little focus there's been in, let's say, the UK on this. I mean, uh, the UK this week sent military uh, assistance to Ukraine and barely got a headline because yeah. everybody's so focused on the politics here. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come to that a little bit later on because... Why miss an opportunity for a great joke? Because that's frankly what it's become. Uh, performative politics. And speaking of performance, let's uh, let's cross to our, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who's talking about what happens after the curtain goes down. 
Over the years, when my other half or good friends have been in plays in the West End, there is often a nice addition after the curtain call, when most people fall into the darkness to find a spot for supper or push through the giddy melee to catch the last train home, you head behind the theatre, often down some piss-fragranced alley to the stage door. Here you'll find the stage doorkeeper, routinely a wise old hand, who is a nice mix of bouncer and maitre d', depending on whether he or she has the cut of your jib. You give them your name, explain who is expecting you, and then they call down to the dressing room or announce over the tannoy your presence. And then down the stairs you go, impressed at how people who were on stage just minutes ago are already streaming past you. Job done. The stairwell walls are covered with old theatre bills and photographs of performers stretching back decades. As an outsider, it's always funny to see how the star's dressing room is no bigger than a cupboard with a mirror festooned with good luck cards and perhaps a forlorn little bed. When you get to meet people in this after-show moment, there is often a bonhomie, a quick glass of wine that even embraces interlopers. Twenty and more years ago, when I had more friends who were actors, there was always another group of people installed at the stage door, the autograph hunters. Now, these were not people who had seen the show or even cared whether it was a smash or a flop. They were men and women who spent their time just tracking down the stars, who wanted a signature on a piece of paper to prove that they had met them, to capture some of the stars glow. You'd see the same people again and again. They had been at it for years. It made you see how being around fame warps us, whether it was me trying to play it cool or that now gone generation of autograph collector seen as too obsessive for comfort by many. But those men and women have nothing on us today. Except it's not autographs that people want now, it's the picture. And the results of this endless celebrity cataloguing play out in one odd way. When people die. Within seconds of anyone famous popping their clogs, social media is filled with photos of the dearly departed with the account's owner. Were they once at the same fundraiser? Appeared on a panel together in 1988? Had a friend who got them backstage at a theatre? Gulp. And the words always follow the same template. So saddened to hear about the death of Meatloaf, I will never forget this moment in Des Moines in 1992. Legend. Or so broken-hearted at the passing of Betty White, who it was my great pleasure to spend some time with. My thoughts are with her family. Those moments, the time spent, probably amounted to seconds. But this is the world of the social media obituary. Meanwhile, what the Post should have said is, I forced them to have a picture taken with me. They were uncomfortable about the whole thing. But hey, it's 2022. What the Insta obituary writers want is just what those autograph collectors sought a moment of connection and a fleeting equivalence. Look, here we were in the same place, in the same moment. So, 
I guess it's all just innocent and fine, except, well, it's not. The insta-obituary writers are a kind of fantasist, out to warp the narrative to, like Woody Allen's character in the movie Zelig, to insert themselves into the story. We live in a time when memories are rarely enough. And I know this impacts me too. But even if we do now have those pictures of extraordinary people on our phones, of seconds spent in the company of our heroes, perhaps that's where they should stay because once you throw them out there, their potency ebbs and you also risk looking, well, a little seedy. And the Insta-Obit is more about the person posting it than the person who is dead. Although, would you like to see the picture of me with meatloaf? Because really, wow, what a day that was. What is it that he won't do, do you think? Letica. Well, I read I read that this was actually a grammatical thing and that that is the start of a new sentence rather than the end of the <laughs> sentence he's singing. But I am no meatloaf connoisseur, so I, I shall uh, defer to the gods of meatloaf fanery to answer this one, Georgina. Okay, so we're not going to discuss meatloaf because at this sad time of his death, uh, there is only room for hagiographies that not, and not <laughs> meatloaf deniers like you. <laughs> Mr. Loaf, soundtrack to my teenagehood, R.I.P. Now, we are obviously going to go back to the topic of Ukraine because this is dominating the world. And indeed, as many people have pointed out, what the US and NATO are trying to do is stop what happened uh, that triggered the First and Second World Wars. That is the invasion of a sovereign country. Uh, and, and that, to put it starkly, is is where we're at. Um, but there are many, many different takes of this from, from around the world and your uh, titles in Australia have managed to get an exclusive and this is a, a different slant on it, quoting uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. What's she told your uh, your newspapers? Yes, this is uh, an interview conducted by my colleague Peter Harcher in, in Sydney and he's had a 30-minute sit-down with Liz Truss yesterday and asked her about the possibility of what China would do if Russia invades Ukraine, like uh, most people I think now expect. And Liz Truss has said, well, I don't think we can rule that out. And what she is referring to with that is the question of whether China would launch its own aggression in the Indo-Pacific, so say Taiwan, anywhere in the Indo-Pacific. And Truss is very clearly saying, well, yes, that's a, a possibility. And she goes on to say Russia is working more closely with, with China than it ever has and aggressors are working in concert. It's uh, incumbent on countries like ours to work together. So I'm picking this, Georgina, why this is such an issue is because analysts think this would be the worst case scenario for the United States. You could have a conflict in the Asia-Pacific that is China-driven, which uh, I think the US sees as the bigger, long-term, more strategic competitor and, and issue here in the world. And then you would have Russia launching perhaps a ground invasion in Ukraine. Mm. Now, where would the US be able to focus its efforts? We've already talked about the weakness of Germany, potentially the, the European Union and NATO here. Um, and Ukraine, of course, is not a NATO member, so it can't expect 
uh, NATO's defences, Liz Truss also points out in this interview. So what exactly does working in concert mean? Mm. And this is, I think, the West problem. There's some very vague uh, phrases thrown around here by politicians but we don't see a lot of meat on bones about what this would mean. And and in terms of Russia, the most we've seen from Biden is that there'll be a heavy price to pay in economic sanctions. I think most people will be thinking, hang on, nobody wants to get involved in a war, but, gee, is that all we've got? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's very scary. And another really scary thing about it is who's in charge, particularly from the British point of view. I mean, uh, your colleague spoke to Liz Truss. Now, of course, she is one of the front runners, we believe, uh, who is in the running to take over should uh, Boris Johnson be defenestrated. Um, so uh, uh, having a look at, at her and her leadership qualities, and indeed at the rest of the, the team, who's your money on? Oh, this is a very hard question. You know, I was writing a, a piece for The Herald this week on just who the runners and riders are in the in the Tory leadership contest. Now, Liz Truss is definitely one of them. And interestingly, she's in Australia right now for these annual defence talks with the, held uh, with the Australian and the British Foreign and Defence Ministers. So that means Ben Wallace is also in Australia. And, the Defence Secretary. Yes. Now, these are the first talks that have been held since the pandemic. Normally, they happen every year, but we haven't been able to hold them since the pandemic. So thank goodness these talks are at least happening because it, it is necessary and, and required for these, these talks to be held in person. Uh, but Ben Wallace is an interesting figure because he's a heavyweight in the Tory party, not really leadership potential himself. But he has formed a very close alliance with Truss and there's a lot of speculation that he could become her campaign manager. And if that is the case, that would put someone like Liz Truss, who is very much seen by uh, too many of her colleagues as a lightweight, um, in the running against probably someone like Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Now, if I was betting today, I would probably put my money on Rishi Sunak because that's who the class of 2019 are firmly behind. They, they think he's got this Boris-like quality to appeal to previous Labor voters up in the, in the north of England. Um, so I would still say Rishi Sunak is the safe bet, but anything can happen, Georgina, in a leadership contest, particularly when the field like this is wide open to, let's admit, or let's face it, not great candidates. I mean, it's just shocking. As we were saying before we came on air, it's actually embarrassing. I think we're seeing this around the world, though. Uh, not that many good people want to go into politics anymore. Perhaps that's a, something to do with just how much media intrusion they get into their lives. I mean, why would a, a business executive who's had a lot of experience managing people and running things, why would they go into politics? Oh, that's absolutely true. And in fact, on Meet the Writers uh, this week, we can hear that at, I think it's 2pm uh, uh, today, 1400 London time. I interviewed Brian Class, who is a political scientist and a frequent contributor here. And he's written a book on corruption and, and power and just, you know, why is everybody or many people in power, why are they corrupt? Or does politics actually corrupt the people who come into it? As you say, who but a narcissist would want the job? I know a lot of good people in, in politics who think... Uh, who I've kind of grown up with, who think they will end up in politics, now backing out. Mm. And I think they just see this life of endless media gossip or interest in things that aren't really that necessary to how they might acquit themselves in the job as too much. And 
I can't blame them, Georgina, sometimes. I can't blame them. Yeah, putting your head above the parapet, I think, in whatever field, has now become an absolute minefield. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Let's join our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, now, because he is assessing the week's weird and wonderful news stories. We learned this week of an interesting codicil to the legal maxim ignorantia juris non excusat, which, as an accomplished Latin scholar like the United Kingdom's Prime Minister as of this recording will recognise, translates as ignorance of the law excuses not. We learned that it turns out that ignorance of the law actually excuses quite a lot, as long as you wrote the law yourself. No, nobody told me that what we were doing was, as you say, against the rules, that the event in question was something that we were going to do something that wasn't a a work event. And, you know, as I said in the House of Commons, when I went out into that garden, I thought that I was attending a work event. We learned in week two of what has become known as Partygate that a scepticism remained at large that Boris Johnson was completely oblivious to the possibility that various soirees, wassails and wingdings at Downing Street these last couple of years had been in breach of COVID-19 protocols. Rules and restrictions about which Johnson might have been supposed to have known something, though perhaps he just doesn't watch a lot of television or listen to much radio or read many newspapers, or do any work. Can someone give the Venga boys a tenner from Petty Cash? And and pass me, if you would, the studio gong mallet. Though don't go too far, chaps. On current form, we'll need you back next week. Not like they've got much else on, though. Anyway, we further learned that as Boris Johnson descended through the levels of political peril from merely embattled to actually beleaguered, his dwindling and inexplicable cohort of supporters inside Westminster were organising a counter-attack, and we learned that this enterprise had been given a code name, like in one of those World War II movies on which the Brexiter contingent have based literally their entire understanding of the world. We learned that the effort to rescue the Prime Minister from the Prime Minister had been dubbed Operation Save Big Dog. Although at this point we reckon we're maybe one more revelation about a lockdown cocktail evening from it having to be hastily rebadged as Operation Trip to the Vet, followed by Operation Tell the Kids He's Gone to Live on a Nice Farm. And just while we're up this way, we learned, thanks to the Evening Standard, who ploughed through the pertinent records, that around the time Boris Johnson was attending the party he now claims not to have known he shouldn't have attended, one London woman who popped round to a neighbour's house to deliver a birthday card and stayed for an outdoor drink was charged with breaking lockdown rules and told the court she didn't do so intentionally. She was convicted and fined £250 and was very far from being the only such example.
Continuing with our research into COVID-19 related malfeasance, we learned that lockdown was perhaps especially rough on the lovelorn. We learned that during the spring of 2021, one Manchester man deprived of the option of offering dinner and a movie attempted to impress the object of his affections by detonating a firework on Marsden Moor without subjecting his plans to the always crucial what could possibly go wrong test. We learned this week that at least one British judge reckons the value of 285 hectares of incinerated countryside at 12 months in the clink and are therefore eagerly anticipating leaked reports of a Downing Street barbecue which got out of hand but which has been hushed up until now. But mostly this whole bit has been an excuse to play Cornfield Ablaze by Prefab Sprout. From 2001's The Gunman and Other Stories, a wretchedly underrated album, can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. Actually, are the Venga boys still here? They can't have anywhere else to be. And they're Dutch or something, right? That's a living, I guess, because we learned that the Dutch had located some picturesque loopholes in the Netherlands' ongoing lockdown, which may, who knows, be of eventual interest to Boris Johnson. Under current restrictions, such venues as theatres, museums and auditoria are not allowed to open, but beauticians, hairdressers and gymnasiums are. We learned that several of the Netherlands' higher-profile arts institutions had protested this apparent inconsistency by combining column A with column B to pleasingly ludicrous effect. So, for e.g., the Limburg's museum hosted a Zumba class, which is the kind of thing they probably play Vengerboy's tracks at. Mallet. And call them a cab, they've earned it. We learned that the Van Gogh Museum invited a couple of nail artists to set up shop, having presumably decided that ear piercers would be overselling it, and that the Royal Concertgebouw had a couple of hairdressers on stage while they soared through Charles Ivers' Symphony No. 2. But come on, Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber was right there. Maybe these highfalutin fancy pants Dutch cultural custodians are not such clever clogs. <laughs> for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew Muller, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and in the studio with me is Australian journalist Latika Burke. Uh, Latika, are you enjoying your coffee? I'm loving my coffee, but I had a double espresso, so it's already gone. <laughs> and also, you're buzzing. Yes, oh, that's see. right. <laughs> no, that's just my natural energy, Georgina. Ah, okay. On a Saturday morning. <laughs> on a Saturday morning. Uh, many thanks to our Monocle Cafe on Chilton Street. They are open all day. Lots of deliciousness to be had. Uh, both Latika and I, and indeed our producer, Nora, for, for, for went foregoed uh, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, lovely buns, our cinnamon and walnut buns today, because... Um, 
Well, I don't know why why we did it. Because I'm on the way to the gym, that's why. (laughs) On the way to the gym, Uh, yeah. Um, So, but but do do pop along there because they are completely delicious. Um, Just before we go into our last story, I want to have a quick look at Tonga. Uh, now, I'm saying, I'm pronouncing it, I'm almost whispering it because I put a question on Twitter yesterday about how to pronounce it because I say Tonga with a hard G, but I have heard other news organisations go Tonga, Tonga, uh, and I'm told that it's that that's probably the correct way to do it. How interesting. In Australia, which mangles every single word possible, <laughs> we just say Tonga, mate. So <laughs> don't come to me for pronunciation guides on Pacific Islands, unfortunately. <laughs> well, there is a big Pacific Island story that's happening and, and uh, beyond Tonga, which, of course, is a huge story in itself. Uh, and one of the reasons, uh, obviously, after the, the volcano exploding, is, is the problem with aid coming in and Tonga wanting to keep out uh, COVID-19. But that's not the only Pacific island that's facing that problem. Yes, uh, this is a really interesting story in the Straits Times um, today. And spare a thought for the poor, tiny Pacific islands, Kiribati and Samoa, which have gone into their first lockdown of the pandemic because they've had their first flights of the pandemic. And naturally, those flights have brought with them coronavirus and it's Omicron and so the real hope they have of keeping uh, their islands COVID free is looking very precarious that's why they've gone into lockdown. Now uh, one of these flights was from Fiji. Now Fiji's had a great vaccination race and keep in mind Georgina the blue economy in the Pacific is their economy. They need tourism Mm. to survive here and so Fiji was one of the first Pacific Islands to get vaccinated. Uh, actually, a lot thank to, thanks to Australian vaccines. Uh, AstraZeneca, which had confidence issues in Australia, so we sent them all to the Pacific, and uh, the Pacific Islands mostly gratefully received them, including Fiji. So they had a really cracking uh, vaccination rate. They've opened up to tourists from November last year. But, of course, they've got tolerance of coronavirus in their communities. So that's been transported to Kiribati on, on the first flight. And And then another flight into Samoa came from Australia, Brisbane. Now, Australia's got one of the highest coronavirus coronavirus infection rates in the world right now. So it's really not surprising that it has been transported to these tiny islands. But what's more concerning is the vaccination rates in in these countries because... Samoa's pretty good. They've got 62% fully vaccinated of their whole population. But Kiribati is only down at 34%. So we do have some real concerns here. And I think just as we're uh, focusing all our attention on on Tonga and the incredible relief effort that's required there as they recover from their tsunami, uh, I think we will need to keep an eye too on its neighbours. Absolutely. Have you had the virus? Yes, uh, two, two years ago, I think. When was it? November... 2020. But no reinfection, which it looks like people are having. No reinfection so far, thank goodness, touch wood. Um, Mm. But it is a a bit of a nervous dodge around tests now to travel because I'm boosted. But um, trying to travel, I recently travelled to Thailand, they do a test and go. So you not only have to have the pre-departure test to get on the plane, but they hold you in a hotel for 24 hours until you test negative. The same is for Israel, which I'm going to on the weekend. And it is just a bit worrying because you can have a very mild infection now and not know it, get on the plane thinking you're okay, but if you've had time to incubate that virus, uh, you'll get 
locked up in a hotel for two weeks and miss out on your trip or whatever. So it's a bit worrying. Serbia, very different. Walked in, no one checked your vaccination, no passenger locator form, uh, came back home and, of course, they've dropped the pre-departure test in the UK. So it was a relatively easy transfer in and out of Serbia to the UK. And given their support of Novak, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder, indeed. Uh, Latika, thank you very much indeed. That is Latika Burke. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora. Hull, our producer Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.